Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Dom Harvey Podcast, sponsored by Generate and Radix. Coming up, New Zealand basketball legend, Alex Pledger. The wedding invites, yeah, we, oh, we sent them early afternoon maybe, and then midnight that night, I was a cancer patient. <laughs> Pleasure is officially the tallest podcast guest ever. Man's a giant. He is also the guest with the biggest feet and maybe the biggest heart as well. This was the first time we've ever met and I knew very little about Alex, but the two hours that we had together just flew by. There are tons of lessons in here. The most important one, I think, being the importance of early detection for bowel cancer. This episode literally could save lives. We cover a lot of ground here. The highs of his epic basketball career, including five NBL titles with the Breakers. The harrowing lows of his bowel cancer journey. The beautiful love story with his wife Bailey. And much, much more. You guys are going to love this one, I just know it. Just before we get into the Pledgehammer story, that's one of his nicknames. Big shout out to the sponsors who have made this episode possible. If you like the content, please consider supporting these brands. Generate and Radix. Generate, first of all, is a KiwiSaver scheme. The Generate team do an incredible job. Just recently, they announced that their returns and advice have helped their members' savings reach over $5 billion. I switched over to Generate when they came on board as a podcast sponsor, and I have not looked back. My only regret, actually, is not doing it sooner, because my KiwiSaver savings would more than likely be worth more than what they are now. If you want to make sure you're making the most of your KiwiSaver account, chat to an advisor now. Head to generatewealth.co.nz. A copy of their product disclosure statement can be found there too. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Also, huge thanks to my day one sponsor, Radix. Mike and his team are making absolute world-class products from their state-of-the-art factory in the White Gatto and shipping them all over the world. Elite athletes have been benefiting from Radix products for years, but all of us, I genuinely believe this, all of us can live healthier and better lives with a little bit of Radix. I start each day with a protein shake made from their powder, and their freeze-dried meals are nothing short of incredible. Don't take my word for it, though. Try them out for yourself, and I promise you will not be disappointed. Radix, spot R-A-D-I-X, nutrition.co.nz. All right. Let's get into it. Alex Pledger, New Zealand basketball royalty, on the Dom Harvey podcast. I've got several nicknames. Yeah, wife, mum. No one calls me Alex anymore. I've got some sort of right. some sort of nickname going yeah, on. Yeah, what is it? There's the pledge hammer. I've heard that. <laughs> when I played for Melbourne, um, Pledgend became one. Pledge. Um, <laughs> at one of the what do you call it? Security at the airport. Someone said I look like a man tree, so that so that one that one caught on for a little bit. Um, 
so yeah there's a there's a few a few nicknames in the in the catalog what's yeah so <laughs> someone at the airport calling you um a man tree i'm guessing yeah. that's in reference to your height when i just met you at the door like 10 minutes ago uh you are like overwhelmingly big <laughs> you, you must um are you self-conscious about how how big you are you must get it every day someone commenting yeah uh not really now like i've I'm 36 and I've been this tall since I was 19. So um, it's kind of, I'm kind of used to it by now. I kind of, you know, you sometimes you notice people staring or or whatever, but yeah, it's it's, it's never really something I've been self-conscious about mm. or, or anything like that. I just have to make sure I don't scrape the top of my head on the door and, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm all good. <laughs> yeah, well, the, 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 the standard yeah. door frame in a house is uh, how, how, how tall? Like t- two metres, just under uh, two? Yeah, I'd say, well, I don't know exactly, but I'd say probably around the six, 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 seven sort of mark. And so you are? Seven, what? Yeah, so you yeah, legit so. have to duck to get yeah. under under doorways. It's mm. um, it's it's actually quite quite interesting to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're a big dude. So so you were you were a big baby? Uh, I would assume so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, in terms of weight or, or anything like that, but I was, um, I was always a big kid. Yeah. There was no, there was no kind of moment where I was kind of around the same as kids my age and then just shot up one year. Um, yeah, I was always, um, yeah, quite a bit taller than kids around the same age as me um and yeah and towards kind of like the middle of high school there was one year how old would i have been 14 15 maybe i went from about six foot four six foot five is what i was at the start of the year and i was six foot ten by the end of it so um so yeah there, there was one year where i did shoot up quite a bit where i was taller than most people my age and then by the end of that year i was taller than almost everyone but um but, yeah, where, yeah. where does the height the height come from is there any obvious like are your parents tall um i don't know to be honest it's a it's a bit of a lottery in our family on on both sides like my um my dad's about five foot ten which is around average for mm, a male i mm. think and my mum's about the same so my mum's quite tall and my brother is six foot eight um but yeah, there are some, there are some short ones. There are some tall ones. <laughs> there are some in the middle. Um, yeah, me and my brother definitely. The when you're swimming through the gene pool, we definitely took the tall part of it. Yeah, something something uh, happened. Yeah, yeah. So, so how how old were you when you when you um, passed your parents in height? Like thirteen, fourteen. Um, I was six foot three when I started high school, and I was twelve. So, um, holy shit, that's so yeah. I'm, I'm quite a tall um, guy, I think I'm six two. So, you yeah. were you were sort of my height or a little bit taller when you were 12, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know how maybe 10 or 11 when I when I was taller <laughs> than my parents, it's gonna be uh, a weird yeah. moment for a parent, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't imagine, but it's um, but yeah, I've I've always, yeah, I've been taller than mum and dad for as long as i can remember mm. really <laughs> and um and in terms of sport and stuff has it always been basketball or was there anything else um not really nah like i i didn't really play basketball at all until i was um or not just basketball but any sport really up until um i was about 16 i started um yeah when i when i was a little kid you know when you know five to 
10, you know, you play your, your rugby on Saturday like most Kiwi kids yeah, do. Sure. Um, but yeah, between then and yeah, 16, my sixth form year of high school, I didn't really play any sport at all. And, um, yeah, and I got into it when, um, I don't know how much you know about New Zealand basketball history, but, um, around 2002, um, is when the the Tall Blacks, they came fourth at the World Cup, um, which kind of kind of shocked the world a little bit. It was the first time that the, pretty sure it was the first time the Tall Blacks had ever, um, had ever qualified for the World Cup and they ended up um, uh, coming fourth and they lost to the team that ended up winning the entire thing um, in the semi-final. And then not long after that was when the Breakers first came into the Australian Basketball League. So at the time, um, basketball was kind of the, you know, rugby's always it in New Zealand, but, you know, basketball kind of had its little moment in the sun, kind mm. of in that early, early 2000s. And um, yeah, I kind of, kind of jumped on the bandwagon uh, from there. Well, that's quite like Brooke Bloomer then. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I don't know why I never got into it. I, because you know when you're a six, ten, fifteen year old walking around, yeah, yeah you must you get know. people all the time, like teachers, parents, whoever, yeah. um, suggesting you become a lock, yeah, uh, or oh, yeah. a lock yeah. in a rugby yeah, team, yeah, or yeah, a basketball yeah. player. Yeah, the um, the economics teacher at Fraser High at the time was a <laughs> South African guy, and he was also the coach of the first fifteen. So every day I walked past his class, he was you know, begging me to join the, the rugby team because they couldn't win a line out to save themselves. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of funny how I got into it because, um, yeah, I was, I was just walking to school one morning and, um, a guy, his name's Doug Courtney. Um, probably not many people would know who he is. He's, um, uh, he's he's just a basketball coach um, in New Zealand. He's coached various. He coached the Waikato team in the just the domestic competition for a, a year or two, and he's coached various like age group teams and stuff like that. And he um, saw me walking to school one morning, and he pulled over on the side of the road, got out of the car, and told me that the school's basketball tryout was on that night, and um, kind of convinced me to go to it so I when I left the house that morning I wasn't planning on going and um and yeah he convinced me to to go along to it that night and um that's kind of how I got into it isn't it amazing so it just almost changed the trajectory of your entire life kind of really? I mean were, yeah were you, I, were you any were you any I mean just because you're tall it doesn't mean you're going to be good at basketball right no, I was not good. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, I. Um, yeah, it took me about six months to remember the rule that you can't spend more than three seconds in the key at a time. What are three but, seconds in the key? What does that mean? Yeah, well, when your team has the ball and you're down, you know, at the offensive end, mm -hmm. you can't stand in the key for more than three seconds without jumping out and jumping back in. Right. It took me a, it took me about six months to figure out that rule <laughs> to remember that you can't do it. Um, took me a while to figure out that you can't goaltend. Um, what, what is that? I'm sorry, you, you have to treat me like the, <laughs> yeah, the. But basically, when a shot goes up, 
it obviously goes up and then when it comes down so when it gets to the top and starts coming down you're not allowed to touch it so yeah quite often i would yeah at the school's trial i would just stand under the basket and every shot that went up <laughs> i would just wait for it to almost hit the rim and then just whack it away and for some reason the coach didn't tell me you're allowed weren't allowed right. to do that <laughs> so um yeah so the entire trial you know when i was on the court the other team didn't score because i just basically just jumped and stuck my hand on top of the <laughs> basket and whacked all of them away and then he told me um when we first started team practices that you weren't allowed to do that so, yeah uh, so you so your your position now uh, or the position that you've you played in for most of your career has been center what does that mean what's that um role? well in these in these days basketball's evolved kind of to the point where there are no positions really these days um you have you know seven foot plus guys shooting threes and handling the ball like guards and but traditionally a center is a guy who plays close to the basket um you know a lot of a lot of stuff close to the basket um at the offensive end and the defensive end you know protecting the basket trying to block shots and get rebounds that sort of stuff so um traditionally that's um that's what a center would do but uh yeah, the way the game has kind of evolved, especially in recent times. Um, yeah, it took people a long time to figure out that three points is worth more than two. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, kind of how the how the game has evolved, where there's a lot more three point shooting and you know bigger players that were taught back in the day. You just run straight to the basket. Everything's close to the basket now. It's kind of evolved to where kind of everyone was quite versatile can mm. do can do a lot more things on the court but yeah typically that's uh, or traditionally that's that's what a center would do and that's what i did for for the majority of my career yeah now, now this this might be a really dumb there might be a lot of dumb questions and you have to forgive <laughs> me um but it comes from a place of curiosity so by um new zealand and australian standards you're you're as good as what it fucking gets right like it's been an incredible career nine seasons with the breakers four titles we'll, we'll get into all that um did, did you ever try and get in the nba or, or like how do, how do you how do you make um, that step up to the nba or how far away from the nba would you um would it's, it's, it's kind of hard to say like mm. there was there were some years um earlier in my career where there were potential opportunities to maybe dabble in the summer league and see how that would go um unfortunately some in, like foot injuries and stuff kind of do derailed that around the time when i was kind of potentially looking at doing that um and you know when i played for melbourne united we played pre-season games against nba teams um and i played pretty well in a couple of those games against um against some pretty good players so you know i'd like to think that when i was a little bit younger if um you know i was able to get over there and give it a crack that i not necessarily have made it because you know there's only 400 and something 450 or so roster spots in the nba and there are thousands and thousands of people who want one of them so, oh, one of the, yeah, one, so, of the, one of the most loved sports yeah, in the world yeah right? so um so yeah but um i would have liked to have think i could have given it a decent crack mm -hmm. but um but at the same time i was pretty happy with mm -hmm. with what i achieved and uh don't and i don't really look back and think 
what if what yeah. if i did that what if i did that different um yeah fuck it must be yeah. must be frustrating though so you, you're swimming in the same waters so you're you're there or thereabouts in terms of of um talent and ability and then um i i don't know what your net worth is but i'm guessing it's a lot less than steven adams <laughs> oh <laughs> like as yeah, soon as yeah. you're in the He's, nba uh, but yeah, it's insane yeah. money right oh yeah it's uh it's it's pretty crazy especially now you know kind of yeah the i think i think the like the league the league minimum like like the veterans minimum is like two and a half million dollars or something, mm. and if you're uh, this remembering trying to remember numbers off the top of my head, I think if you're like an undrafted rookie, um, it's about nine hundred thousand. So, so yeah, even if you're kind of like a like a reserve, for, even if you're for NBA standards, you know, bottom of the barrel type thing, um, you know, you're still making close to a million dollars a year <laughs> do you know Stephen adams have you met him, you um, played with him? I, i've met him a couple of times I, I i don't know him that well i we the breakers played a preseason game um against kind of like a new zealand select team it was like just players who play in the domestic competition and yeah, yeah, it was just like a, and he played in that, but he was like sixteen or seventeen at the time. Mm. So this is before he went to to college in the US, and bef- like he was kind of at that time he was seen as kind of like the next big thing and like an in, like a future like NBA yeah, prospect. Yeah. He he was he was a well known figure at that point, but um, so I played against him then, and yeah, and because he he comes back to New Zealand during most off seasons to for like his his camps and uh and stuff like that and i've met him a few times but i um i don't know him super well but he's obviously uh uh you know in terms of the world stage uh, a pretty pretty good ambassador for kind yeah. of new zealand sport and just new zealand in general yeah absolutely um and you first made the tall blacks in 2008 um hey, by the way um i asked you I, I sent you a message asking if you wanted a coffee on arrival and you said a long black um <laughs> it must have been very tempting to ask for a tall black <laughs> yeah um yeah that's just the the one i normally go for i after having my bell reconstructed a couple of times i'm not an overly fun person to be around if it has too much milk in it. oh is that right <laughs> right yeah, oh, so um you... so yeah i try to i try to avoid that as much as i can okay oh that's an interesting interesting side effect yeah i, I want to get into that chapter because i feel like that's a whole chapter on its own the whole yeah. uh, bowel cancer journey which um yeah doing doing research for this podcast uh, fuck what a journey you've been through <laughs> like like harrowing yeah. awful an awful patch of your life but you're through that which is amazing mm-hmm. um but let's just um you focus on the basketball for a bit so yeah. you, you make the tall blacks in 2008 what what happens uh do you get a phone call from the coach are you on the, the radar do you feel like you're going to be selected what happens um yeah well they well that particular year 2008 i had been in contact with the coach for several months leading up to the the trial um so yeah it's like 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 you have to be invited to the trial it's not like an open thing where anybody can just rock up and hey to see if you can make the tall blacks um (laughs) yeah so just being invited is normally a pretty good indicator that the coach thinks you can either make it or you will you're kind of on the radar for in the future Mm -hmm. Because how old was I in two thousand and eight? Um, twenty one. Twenty one. Yeah. So um, 
so yeah, I was pretty young at the time and yeah, I went to the, went to the trial, um, and, um, performed quite well. And yeah, when it comes to getting selected, um, just at the end of the camp, um, I think it was like four or five days maybe, um, of practicing two or three times a day. And, um, at, yeah, at the end of it, they, at the hotel we're staying at, we just go to one of the meeting rooms and, uh, they, they announced the squad from there and that's kind of how it went. And, um, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty stoked to, cause I didn't, cause it was the first time I'd ever, um, I'd ever gone to it. So I, so, you know, some of the, the legends of New Zealand basketball, you know, your Piero Cameron and your mm. Paul Hanari, Dylan Boucher, all those sort of guys, they were Kirk Penny, you know, they were, um, they were still kind of all there. So kind of, you know, being being around those guys and um, they must and, have been yeah. so intimidating. <laughs> yeah. So there you are. You're 21. You've only been playing basketball like four or five years. Yeah. Were you like a shy kid around them? What were you? Um, yeah, I was. I like. I'm not a. Just in my everyday life, I'm not a super. Um, like I'm not a real chatty person. Like I'm not a. You know, I'm not a. Um, What's the word you could use? Like I'm not a I'm not a peacock. I'm not going to walk into the room and go, "Hey, look, I'm here." You know, I stand out. Oh, I stand out enough. As yeah, it is. anyone so that, anyone that's yeah. listening to this would probably get that impression about you already. Like you, you know, you're softly spoken. You're mm. just a quiet, humble guy. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it was it was it was really cool to to kind of mix it up with those guys and that that trial for a couple of days mm. and um, yeah, to to hear my name called out um the first time I ever tried out for the team um. Yeah, it was a it was a great honor, and I, um, you know, I can't remember how many years I played for the Tall Blacks, probably ten or eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so yeah, being selected for that first time, and you know, get to pull on the black singlet, um, yeah, it was a great honor. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Yeah, was was um, was the peak of your time in, as a tall black in um, the Commonwealth Games 2018 where you won a bronze? Or no? Would there um, be something else? No, nah, I think the probably the biggest achievement that 
happened for my time for the Tall Blacks anyway was um, the second year I got selected was in 2009 and we and it was kind of like a, a bit of a transition time there was um, you know like Piero Cameron had just retired Dylan Boucher like when I say retired I mean from playing internationally like they still played for the breakers and stuff but um, you know Piero retired Dylan Boucher retired Paul Hennade had retired um, Phil Jones had retired you know there were um, and you know there were a few and it was kind of like a time you know there was kind of like when I was coming up Tom Abercrombie was coming up Micka mm. Vakona, Corey Webster so it was kind of like a the the time you know when those guys were leaving and we were coming in um and yeah so we had a very young and, and outside of kirk penny i think kirk and maybe Lindsay tate they were the only ones that had been around the tall blacks for you know more than a year or two um you know we had a very young and experienced team we had a very short trip to europe um, and I think we played like eight, eight or nine games in 12 or 13 days. It was, it was pretty whirlwind. Mm-hmm. It was travel, play, travel, play, travel, play. Um, and the kind of the event that we were building up to was the 2010 world cup qualifying, um, which, and we were playing against Australia and Australia, uh, I think they're like top three in the world at the moment um and at the time they were probably in the top 10 and highly favored to highly favored to beat us in the qualifying series because um just because we had so many new faces and we were inexperienced Mm. and had never played games at that level before um and it was it was a two-game series and so in the event of a tie, it would go to the points differential over the two games. And we lost we lost the first game in Sydney by um, seven. And then we won the second game in Wellington by 22. So it was, we, we don't beat Australia. Like in individual games, it's not super uncommon for us to beat Australia, but in a in a series like that it was only the third time that we'd ever beaten them and i don't know if the record still stands but at the time that was the biggest in terms of just the amount of points we won by that was the biggest win um that we'd ever had against australia so um for a team full of young and inexperienced players to you know to to walk onto that court against um and to be fair the the boomers the well that's what they're we called the tall backs. They're called the boomers. Are they called the yeah. boomers? Yeah. It's no oh, yeah. name. <laughs> yeah, um, especially, especially yeah, yeah. Given the circumstances, taking on a team of um, young dudes. Oh, young dudes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Them. So that they they didn't they didn't have their strongest possible team yeah. either, but they were highly favoured against us. And um, yeah, to walk away from that series with uh, you know winning the the point differential by by fifteen points, that was a pretty um, pretty significant moment for all of us young players just knowing that we can that we can play on that kind of stage Mm. uh internationally and and uh you know come away with some wins against some big some good teams yeah do do you think 
Um, yeah, part of the um, enjoyment of that was that people had, people had low expectations of you and had sort of written you off in a way. Um, yeah, maybe. Like, I, I wouldn't say people had written us off, but they just, you know, it's just the way it works, yeah, really, when you have yeah. a bunch of unproven young players playing on that stage for the first time. Um, you know, that's just how it was. We never, we never really paid too much attention to what people thought was going to happen. You know, we made that eight game trip that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, we played really well on that trip. We made a lot of improvements. We played against, um, you know, some of the team in terms of like European talent, you know, we weren't playing against the top, top tier, you know, we weren't playing Spain and Serbia and, you know, those kind of upper echelon type teams. We're playing kind of more mid-level teams. You know, we played some really good ones like Finland and Italy teams that quite often qualify for the World Cup and, and stuff like that. But then we played some more mid-level teams like Estonia, Portugal, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and we we had some... Yeah, we had some good wins against some good teams. We played, we played Belgium um, on back-to-back games, and um, in Belgium as well, obviously. And we lost the first one uh, by twenty-ish. Like we, yeah, it was out of those eight games. It was probably the one where we played. It was probably like the one where we didn't play that well. Um, and then we played them again two days later, and they added an NBA player, which you would th- which would just increase their talent level and make them better. And um, and we and we beat them in that game. So I think it was kind of, you know, the and um, yeah, I'm not much of a bragger, but I made the game winning shot in that game as well. Oh, so, brag, uh, brag so, uh, like a buzz, so, like so a buzzer beater, sort of. Yeah, yeah. So that was <sighs> so that was pretty massive for my personal confidence. Um, having, um, yeah, it wasn't a fade away one legged shot with two defenders on me. It was uh, Lindsay Tate attacked the basket and drew a couple of players, and he just all of a sudden I was standing under the basket and I just laid it in. But um so yeah, it wasn't the the hardest shot to make. But um <laughs> but just just for just for the the overall confidence. Um yeah, that was massive and I think it just showed the mm-hmm. the improvement that we made in such a short time losing to that team by twenty two days earlier mm-hmm. than they add an NBA player to their roster and we, we turn around and beat them. So so yeah, we were feeling we were feeling pretty good about ourselves um, going into that two game series against Australia, but um, yeah, I, I definitely didn't didn't think that we'd win a game by twenty, but mm. um, but um, but yeah, it was just one of those games where everything goes right. There was a little patch in the third period where kind of you know you need a little bit of luck sometimes to go your way, and a couple of shots that we just threw up as the shot clock was about to to go off that go in off the backboard and you know someone threw uh mike fitchett i don't know if you who know who he is but he's um you know a a coach of the nelson giants in the domestic league he made a shot from about 12 feet behind the three-point line as as the third quarter buzzer went off so yeah it was just one of those one of those times where 
you know the the you know those lucky sort of mm. things four or five of those happen in a row she and, uh, your your recollection of these games and they're like 14 15 <laughs> years ago it's remarkable yeah. is it is it like that with um if i referenced like any sort of game you could like pick bits of it um i mean the yeah. reason i ask is there's, there's so many there's over like 200 games for the breakers i don't know how many games for the tall blacks but there's so many games but yeah, can you remember like particular moments, or is it just um, memorable games or moments? Yeah, yeah, it's more the importance of the game. You know, like like the Breakers playoff games through like the championship runs. I'd be able to you know recall specific things about those games, but you know the the Australian League game uh, season is twenty eight games. So could I remember? a random Thursday night game 17 of the season. <laughs> I probably yeah, yeah, pro- yeah. probably wouldn't have too many memories yeah, of yeah. kind of the the grind of the regular season, but the, you know, the, the semifinals and the grand finals, um, you know, kind of the, the important ones I'd, 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 I'd have, I'd definitely be able to recall the, mm. the big moments from those sort of games. Yeah. yeah. Well, since you mentioned the breakers, let's, um, let's get into that. Cause it's, um, an incredible career there. Nine seasons with the breakers, four titles. Were you, were you there from day one uh, with, with like when the breakers launched, uh, were you oh, a year one player? No, no. Nah, well, they, they, I'm pretty sure their first year in the league was 2003 and I was still in high school. Oh, yeah. I just started playing basketball then. So, um, Definitely not from day one, but I was there um, as a development player uh, in the 2009 season. So the season that, because obviously the season starts in one year and finishes. And so the season that started 2009 finished in 2010. Um, that was my my first year there, and I was a development player. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's so how many years they it was like their sixth or seventh year in the yeah. competition when I when I first joined. Because you, you, I mean, you're one of the breakers' goats, right? Like there's there's only a handful of players that have played more than 200 games. I think it's like oh, five players. Oh, I wouldn't call myself that, but if other, no, you wouldn't. If, if other if other people Why? want to, if other people want to put that label on it, um, what well, is that? Um, but, uh, <laughs> is that is that a is that the um is that a, just a, a Kiwi modesty thing, or oh, is it just I, a personality oh, type? Or oh, I think probably a combination of those yeah. two things. But um, but you you can acknowledge that it's been a fucking good career, though. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. I've been. I I would guess I'd be in the top five in games played i think for the breakers i played yeah i remember 200 would have been i think i think overall i played about 285 maybe something like that Mm. when you when you include the couple of seasons i played for melbourne at the end so yeah i'd say it would have been just over 200 for the breakers and 60 70 for for melbourne but um but yeah, I, I assume that I'd be top five in most of the the longevity kind of numbers, like the games played and points and rebounds and uh, all sorts of stuff. But um, and f- four titles as well, <laughs> four yeah. titles. Yeah, yeah, I um, yeah, I was one of one of three guys to to be on all four of those teams with um, Tom Abercrombie and Mika Vakona being the the other two and. Um, Dean Vickerman and Judd Flavel were the two. They were either the head coach or the assistant coach on on all four of the teams. So yeah, being one of five one of five guys who was involved in 
in all four of those. Um, yeah, that's a, a pretty special thing that I, I look back on. Um, Sounds like yeah. you're painting a very big picture of you being one of the goats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it is just... Uh, I don't know, you know what Americans are like there. It's like, oh, yeah, but you know, yeah, I'm the girl. Yeah. I'll, I'll let other people decide yeah. if they want to put me in that kind of class or not. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And, and what, is, um, what, are, what, what do those titles mean exactly? Like, how big a deal is it? How significant is it? For some, anyone that's listening to this that doesn't sort of, I don't know, actively follow basketball or the NBL? Um, well, it was, it was significant for a lot of reasons. You know, the Breakers had really, you know, they had a couple of, good years where they went on where they made the playoffs and had some kind of playoff runs but you know up until that point the breakers had mostly struggled you know they hadn't they hadn't won a lot before that so to kind of um turn the corner and you know get over the hump as they say for the first time um was obviously very significant but the the big thing was you know we're the one new zealand team in an Australian competition, you know, similar to the Warriors, similar to how the Warriors are the one New Zealand team and the Phoenix are the one New Zealand Mm. team. And, um, it's a little bit different with the netball because there's a bunch of New Zealand teams mixed into it, but you know, no New Zealand team, um, that plays in an Australian competition had ever won before. Um, yeah. So being, being the first, the first New Zealand team in an Australian competition, um, with primarily uh, New Zealand core of players. Like obviously, we have a couple of American players on the team and there's always one or two Australians mixed in there. But having um, primarily like a New Zealand core of players um, and then, you know, kind of having a stranglehold over the competition for, you know, a five, six-year period, um, yeah, it was it was a pretty significant kind of time for basketball in New Zealand and it kind of rose you know basketball is like one of the fastest growing sports in the country at the moment in terms of like the grassroots and like high school and school type level um and yeah it kind of rose things back similar to a level where it was when I first started playing in 2002 from that tall blacks team Mm. that did really well and you know when you yeah when you combine the success that the breakers had over that period um and with Stephen Adams making the NBA, um, you know, it was, you know, I, I think those two things combined were a pretty significant contributor to why basketball has increased in its popularity so much over the last decade or so. Oh, yeah, it's it's it's, it's massive. It feels like it's as big now as what it was like uh, when the Chicago Bulls were <laughs> like, when was that, like late 90s? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. It's, so yeah. so those those breakers wins, those four titles, what, what years were they that you won? Um, 2011, 12, and 13, we won three in a row. And then we had a year where we weren't great. And then we kind of regrouped and, and won it again. So there was a six year period um, where we made the grand final. Yeah, there was a six year period where we won the grand final. Four, we made it to the grand final five times and we won it four times mm. so yeah it was a pretty a pretty good run of um uh, of success yeah, yeah from a team perspective it's it's you'd, you'd call it a dynasty wouldn't you it was massive yeah that was that was a word that we started throwing around yeah you know, that's kind of um you know if you look like i was in my history of the australian nbl 
before the breakers joined in 2003 isn't very good but um yeah i think you'd struggle to find a team that kind of had that level of sustained success over a long period of time you know you quite often have uh you know flash in the pan type moments where a team has a guy with lots of money and they sign lots of good players and then they win and all those players go on and they they so they might have a year or two where they're really really good and then after that they kind of fall off a little bit i think kind of having a a sustained period of time where we kept like no team is ever going to be exactly the same year after year after year mm-hmm. but we you know kept most of the same coaching staff and kind of like that same core of players that the squad was built around um and you know the turnover of players wasn't overly massive like it is with teams that um you know perhaps aren't so good well, if you have that so, winning environment yeah. no one wants to leave <laughs> yeah. eh? oh yeah everyone wants a, in rather yeah, than yeah, out. that kind of 2010 to 2015 um yeah, it was a it was a pretty good time to be a, yeah what a time to, to, to be a member of the Breakers it was a pretty absolutely good time. and then so you left the Breakers in uh, twenty eighteen I think your your final contract before that was like a three year three year deal is is the is the money in the NBL okay is the money good um yeah it's pretty good it's not it's not what it is in the NBA no <laughs> but, uh, no, no but it's because uh, I, I think you, yeah, you I yeah. mean it's um it's a professional environment and you have to put all you guys have to put your whole professional sort of careers or, or, or life on hold i guess in a way but um yeah you, you yeah. want to make sure you're fairly compensated for it is it okay yeah it's it's really good mm. especially you know when you're um you know when you're part of kind of like a championship core um you know they i, I won't go into amounts but they they look after you pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Oh, no, no, I'm reading. I'm reading a book. At, I'm curious about this because I'm reading a book at the moment called Relentless. It's by a guy called Tim Grover, who's like the mental oh, skills yeah. coach for yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan, yeah. Kobe, uh, LeBron, Dwayne Wade. Um, so I'm, I'm curious after reading this book because it, the, this book it paints a picture of um, all those guys I mentioned as being fucking assholes to play with, <laughs> like just intimidating and scary and just focused on on winning. What would your teammates say about you? Like, what's your sort of demeanor in um, the changing room or that environment? Yeah, I, I was always more of a, I was I was never a super vocal yell and scream kind of guy. I was always more of a you know do it by my actions kind of person you know i'd always um i'd always try to be as professional as possible i'd always try to show up on time and do all the things that you need to do to be ready to play ready for practice ready for games and just being consistent Mm. with what i do um so i think you know i was i always tried to be you know, an uplifting member of the team. If I'd see, you know, players with their head down or that, cause that's something that I struggled with early in my career, especially when I was younger. Um, you know, when you'd miss a couple of shots or a few things wouldn't go your way. And I think that's something that I got better with over time. You know, I left the, um, the yelling and the screaming to, Paul Hanare, Paul Hanare, and Mika Vakona, <laughs> CJ Bruton, let, yeah. let those guys do do most of the talking, and I'd kind of be more of a more of an actions person, um, and kind of 
um, you know, try to be as professional as I could mm. um, in that way. So, um, yeah, if you asked uh, the guys that I played with, hopefully hopefully that's what they'd say because mm. that's at least what I tried to do. Yeah, because yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm intrigued about it from re- reading this book because, uh, you know, a lot of people are probably confidence players and it's like if you, yeah. if you fuck up, you know you fucked up. The last thing you need is someone else yelling at you, especially a senior team member yelling at you, telling yeah. you you fucked up. Yeah. Um, but it's, an, it's, it's a, just a fascinating insight into that sort of high-performance environment. Yeah, I, I guess it's just, you know, different, you know, different styles, different leadership styles work for different people, you know, yeah. like the, yeah, I don't know if you, you know, during the lockdown period, I don't know if you watched that Last Dance documentary oh. about, about the last season in Chicago. With <sighs> Several Jordan. times. But, you know, he was, you know, he was kind of a dick, you know, he was, <laughs> he'd, he'd ride his teammates, he'd get on them, he'd. And, um, you know, you, you hear stories about like guys like Kobe Bryant, they're the same, but then, you know, you have your, um, you know, someone like Tim Duncan who played for the San Antonio Spurs. He was never one of those guys, or at least outwardly what you'd see, you know, mm. in the public, he was never that way. He was always a, you know, a lead by example. Uh, you know, he would let his actions do the talking mm. more than just, being one of those sort of guys and it's the same with LeBron you know some guys you know yell and scream and get on their teammates it's like you know if I'm doing like you know if you're Michael Jordan it's like I'm the best player on the team I'm doing all this stuff there's no reason why you can't do it whereas LeBron's kind of more of a put put his shoulder around Mm -hmm. you you know if he you know Kobe and Michael Jordan were kind of you know I put in the most work I'm taking the shot, give me the ball. I've earned this sort of mm. thing. Whereas LeBron's more of a, you know, he put, put, puts his arm around you, you yeah. know, you know, if you miss a, you know, if you miss a, if he passes you the ball and you miss a shot, next position down, if you're wide open again, he's going to give it to you again. So, you know, there are lots of different leadership styles. There's, I don't think there's one particular mm. way that works better than the other. I think it just kind of depends on the individual and depends on the other individuals on the team. I yeah, you got to do what's yeah. right for your personality type, eh? Um, in this book, one example they give us uh, like Shaquille O'Neal and how he could have had more rings yeah. um, potentially, but he was just, you know, he, he will go down as being you know, remembered as a great teammate yeah. and people enjoyed playing with him. Whereas Kobe, <laughs> yeah. more success, more rings, but um, yeah, just like difficult to be around. Yeah. Like there was, when, when I played for Melbourne, there was a, um, uh, a guy who's the assistant coach with, the Los Angeles Lakers right now. He's um no. his name's Phil Handy. I don't he's probably not a household name to most New Zealand basketball fans, but he he's kind of world renowned as kind of one of the best like he's really like individual development, like skill development. And he's worked with Kobe, LeBron, Kawhi Leonard, you know, like the best of the best. And he and I was I was watching this this podcast episode he was on, I can't remember what it was called, and he asked he asked Kobe Bryant one day, he said, like, because he'd yell and scream at teammates, he'd do this, he'd do that, and then he'd and he asked him one day, he was just like, Kobe, why are you such an asshole? He was like, Why <laughs> like why are you this way? And then he explained that, you know, just the the amount of work and the attention to detail that Kobe would put into the game, you know, he'd show up to practice five hours early and mm. he'd 
get an individual like skills workout in and then he'd take a nap at the stadium then he'd have another one and then the actual practice would start and then when practice was finished he'd and you know he there were times where he'd just the exact same spot on the floor the same footwork the same shot he'd just do it time after time after time for like an hour straight and I don't know like just the same footwork same shot everything for an hour and you know and he'd get frustrated when he was doing all of this but then there were other guys on the team that would show up 10 minutes before practice started and then they'd leave 10 minutes after practice finished yeah so they'd kind of do you know the bare minimum so so his kind of mentality is you know why am I going to pass them the ball when they don't put in the same amount of work Mm -hmm. that I put in and you know that's that's kind of the style that the leadership style and his kind of mindset towards things that's that's kind of how he worked Mm. and it was obviously pretty successful for him and um but you know there are guys who kind of do it the opposite way Mm. and have just as much success as well yeah i I suppose the one big takeaway or the one common link with um all these high performances is is just that there's um um like natural talent is is is, 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 it's a thing but it's a myth to a degree because um the one superpower all these guys have is hard fucking work yeah they work harder than anyone else yeah it kind of yeah, like people ask me all the time, you know, what, what does it take to become a professional sports person? And um, just saying, oh, you just have to work hard. That kind of seems like the cop-out answer just because it's easy. Yeah. But but at the end of the day, that that kind of what it is. You know, there are lots of players who are talented and they, you know, the, the younger levels, but eventually – you know, just being talented isn't enough. You know, talent, just having a natural talent will get you to a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, without hard work, you're going to yeah, be caught out eventually, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So it kind of, yeah, it's kind of, it seems like the easy answer just to, just because, but it's also probably the most correct answer. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's not some, you know, there's not some secret club that, tells certain people the secret and doesn't tell other people mm-hmm. you know it's 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 it, it really is that simple yeah. yeah so you you ended your career you you ended on your own terms which i think is um like if you're in this high performance sort of domain i think th- there's there's only two ways to go out right <laughs> unceremoniously dumped yeah. or getting to leave on your own terms and you you were lucky enough to leave on your own terms so you finished with um the southland sharks um and they retired your number yeah. Uh, number 35 um for anyone that's not into basketball or doesn't really understand the significance of that can you explain it yeah well um well it's basically i, I don't it's kind of fun kind of hard to find a comparison in other sports really but you know they retiring your number essentially what that means is they they typically do some type of ceremony like they'll get like a like a banner type thing with like a basketball singlet drawn on it and the number and your last name they'll raise it up into the rafters of the stadium and it's basically just you know it's a an honor to that they bestow on people that have contributed significantly to the club's history whether it's being through multiple championships or playing playing there for a very long time or just being you know a a significant member of that organization mm. for a long period of time and contributing to its success and 
um yeah i was i was pretty i was pretty honored and surprised as well when they were you surprised they, yeah because you, yeah. you they have to suggest you can't suggest it oh no no, no. <laughs> oh yeah yeah you, you don't walk you don't walk into the office and go you're retiring my number um oh, yeah, Kobe yeah, would. yeah. <laughs> oh, so, but, so, um, so they they but, say hey we're going to do this for you and it's a hard uh, thing well, well i i had no idea because we at the um you know the last on like the last home game that we played that season when, cause I told them that I was, um, you know, going to retire two, three weeks before that. And so, you know, they made this big push for the last, the last home game and there was a pretty big crowd there. And then, you know, there were some speeches and stuff at the end of the game and, and then all of a sudden I turn around and this thing's being lifted up and I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, yeah, it's keep keeping things from my wife is a pretty hard thing to do. She had no idea either. So, um, so yeah, being being deemed uh, worthy of that that honor, there's only, um, you know, there's only two. Well, I was the second player for the Sharks. Um, to to have their number retired. The other one was um Kevin Braswell, who played, uh, who was a member of the first Breakers Championship team. Um, so yeah, to be one of only two players, um, the, you know, to have their number retired for that club, it's, um, yeah, it's a pretty big honor and, um, and something that I'm very thankful for. Yeah. And, and you made, um, you made a hell of a speech, um, a lovely tribute to your wife Bailey as well. Fuck. How did you, how did you hold it together? Are you, are you an emotional guy? Like I, um, like I was watching it on YouTube and I had tears streaming down my face. It was such yeah. a, such um, a powerful moment. No, I'm, I'm normally... I'm normally pretty stoic. I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not, I, I, I have found since the, since the, cancer. The, since the, the, the cancer diagnosis and getting over it, you know, things that wouldn't have caused that sort of reaction from me would even things like, um, you know, like in, you know, like a TV show or a movie or something, <laughs> um, you know, like if, you know, someone having cancer is a significant part of like the story of the movie or the show it would have been before oh that's quite sad isn't it um but yeah but now <laughs> it's kind of like i actually know you're like you know you know that um that that after that ricky gervais oh, tip, afterlife. afterlife yeah incredible yeah, netflix that, show yeah that, that, at the end of that i don't yeah I've, I've i don't think i've ever cried so much at the end of a tv mm. show um so yeah it's kind of um yeah but yeah she you know what what she's done for me and the two of us um throughout that entire period of our lives um you know because in the middle of covid and everything we were over in australia and we came back and we were down in southland when the diagnosis happened and we moved back up to hamilton and she planned our wedding and it was just on on top of watching me going through what I was going through. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it takes a, a pretty special person to be able to hold it together and just kind of carry the two of us through a time like that. Yeah. Oh, she sounds incredible. She actually, I was going to say she sounds incredible, but you seem like an incredible couple together, like a real power couple. So let's um, focus on her a little bit and then we can um, get into the cancer stuff as much or as little as you want. So how, how did you and Bailey meet? Um, to, so you go. Could we actually... Um, cause we're both from Hamilton. We actually went to high school together, but we, we didn't, <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, yeah. Well, same we, year, same age, same uh, year. She, she was the year below me, but we, we didn't re- like, 
we were aware that we existed, but we weren't like friends or we didn't really know each other in high school at all. Um, but yeah, because she, she's tiny, right? Oh yeah, she's like two feet shorter than me. Yeah, she <laughs> she is not she is not tall at all. Um, but yeah, so we after the breakers won for the first time um, in two thousand and whatever it was, we we were out celebrating. Um, we were out at a, at a bar somewhere in Auckland, and the same night was the night of the um, what are their names the the William and Kate wedding, like the royal wedding. Oh, yeah. Um, so of the two things that were happening at that time, it's pretty obvious what one she was celebrating or what one she was more interested in. So I, so we, <laughs> so I, we ran into each other in this in this bar and we just started talking. He's like, oh, so what are you guys all doing out here? It's like, oh, we just won the championship. He's like, oh, that's cool. I just watched the Royal Wedding. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so, so, yeah, she had no idea that um, the Breakers had just won the championship. I don't even know if she knew who the Breakers even were. But, um, but yeah, we just started talking from there. We met up a couple of times. It kind of, yeah, it wasn't like a, we met that night and then we were just a thing that kind of evolved over a little bit of time but um but yeah we've we've been married for two and a bit years yeah yeah two and a half years but we've been together for you know over 10 we've been yeah because i think um to timestamp it i think will and kate's wedding was 2011 yeah that'd be right 2011 yeah Yeah, around about april april may 2011 yeah um so you yeah so you so you got together in 2011 so you knew each other at school but didn't really know each other yeah, yeah, we yeah, okay. we we just went to the same school. So no school ball or childhood sweethearts or anything like that. Oh no, no. Um, and you proposed on a Ferris wheel. Did it? Did a lot of thought go into this, or um, was um, it an opportunistic sort of um, thing? Uh, a little bit of thought went into it. In the um, in Melbourne, there's um, I actually think it's shut down now. I don't. Th- I think it was a a COVID casualty, unfortunately. But um, yeah, there's this big uh, Ferris wheel in Melbourne. Um, in Docklands, I think the area is, and um, and yeah, it's it's not like a Ferris wheel where you just sit on the chair and they bring down a barrier like an arm thing. It's like you, it's like you're you're in this big like cubicle type oh, thing. Okay, yeah. Oh, like the sort of um, like the London Eye. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's basically okay. Yeah, and um, and we got there and we went in line. There weren't a lot of people waiting, but I wanted to, I wanted to have um have like one of those cubicle things to ourselves i didn't want other i didn't want other people <laughs> eight other people in there. yeah i didn't want other people in there obviously so she was wondering what i was doing because um she didn't know that i was having the ring made and she didn't know that she had no idea that that was this because i just got back from the world cup um in 2019 and so we hadn't been so we hadn't seen each other for like six weeks. So she thought it was just like a date night or something. And um so we we went there and every time I'd get to the front of the line, or every time we were the only two people in the line thinking, okay, we're gonna have our little cubicle thing to ourselves, someone else would join the line. And I'd always be like, oh, no, no, you guys can go ahead. And she was getting kind of annoyed at me, wondering, like, what on earth are you doing? Um, yes, but it, we eventually, I, I had to tell, because it had been close to an hour, and we'd been, <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd been waiting in line letting people go. So I told, like, the conductor person 
what I was doing. Yeah. So they moved us over to this other area and um yeah, so they let us get one by themselves and um I waited until it got to the very top and I told her just to like look out the window and I pretended to be taking I was like, Oh take I'll take some pictures of you while you're looking out the window and then um when she turned around I was fumbling around trying to get the ring box out of my pocket and um and that's that's kind of how that happened so yeah so she kind of turned around and kind of had no idea what was going on so that was quite good I hope it was a special moment (laughs) and um yeah did you have to say the words or did she just say yes immediately Um, well yeah I'd rehearsed what I was going to say several times before we went and then my mind just went blank, so I was just like, <laughs> I actually can't remember what I said. Yeah, but I actually, I actually don't remember her saying yes either. But I don't know. She well, the, she, yeah. she snatched the ring out of the box <laughs> and chucked it on. Um, so she, well, actions yeah. speak louder than words sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that was um. Yeah, when was that? That was uh, uh, two thousand nineteen. Two thousand nineteen, and then you yeah. got married um June twenty twenty one in Central Otago, Gibson yeah. Valley. Yeah. Um, and. Then the, the wedding invites that they they were sent out the same day you got the yep. cancer diagnosis. Yep, that morning. Yeah, we oh we sent them. <sighs> what I don't know would have been early afternoon maybe, and then yeah, midnight that night. I was a cancer patient. <laughs> so what yeah, a day. It was, yeah, it was uh, highs and lows. Yeah, it was. Yeah, even earlier that day we had because because it was like a month away from the Southland Sharks season starting, and. So, you know, the co- the coach um, and our American players were in um, like the 14-day, like I like the MIQ thing. And um, but all of our local players and our assistant coach were there. So we'd be doing, you know, three-on-three, four-on-four type things. And um, I was, you know, it was going really well. I was like, shit, like we have a chance to be a really good team. And then we sent those out. And then, yeah, it was kind of the uh, – yeah, the day turned mm. on its head in a pretty massive way. <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah, we'll get back to that. But these these yeah. two sort of significant life events sort of intertwine over eh? the, the wedding and the the cancer. So yeah, so you, you get married in June twenty twenty one, and you're you're sick at that point, or you're yeah. in the middle of treatment. Yeah, yeah, it had it had just or oh, one part of the treatment had just finished. I I was diagnosed four days before my thirty fourth birthday, and. 23rd of March um and I finished I had five weeks of um radiation treatment and chemotherapy in Dunedin so that was um for five weeks it was every weekday on the the radiation machine and then there were these chemo therapy like they, they were pills they weren't like an IV type thing mm-hmm. they were um, they were pills, and I took seven of them in the morning and seven of them at night. Um, and they were like just like your typical Panadol-sized pills, which was a low, and apparently it was a low dosage. Yeah, what, but, um, what do they do to you? Do they do they they uh, knock well, you for six? Yeah, yeah. Well, the it was a, even though fourteen pills a day sounds like a lot. Um, it was it was the radiation was the most important part, and. Um, from what they were telling me, the the point the point of those pills was to make the cancer more susceptible to the 
um, to the radiation. Mm. So, so yeah, it was five weeks of that and those 14 pills every day. Um, and I, I finished that. It was about three weeks before the wedding day when I'd finished and there was some real, cause I, you know, three, four days away, I was still feeling quite sick. Um, it took the first two weeks afterwards, I could hardly eat and could hardly get out of bed. Um, and yeah, kind of the week leading into it, I was like, shit, I don't know what I'm going to be able to, I might be able to walk myself down, say I do, then go back to bed. That's kind of what it, that's kind of what it was looking like for a little <laughs> while. It gives but, the parents uh, for your family yeah, and friends. But, um, but yeah, luckily it, um, I kind of did that kind of final week leading into it. I did, um, you know, I, after that initial period of recovering where I felt like utter garbage um yeah i did bounce back quite well and mm. was able to partake in the wedding uh the way i was hoping to yeah. Yeah, so when you look back on um on, you know on video footage of that day or photos of that day like how, how do you feel is it just a day of overwhelming happiness or from the perspective of where you are now is it a sort of mixed day because you're sick you're not sure if you're gonna live or die really i guess yeah and was, you're marrying the love of your life yeah it was it was obviously a day of of happiness mm. but looking back you know we like like we were in america a couple of weeks ago and we reshot our wedding photos and you know not legally because we were married already but you know got married again um you know we just found the photos hard to look at just because um like when, when the radiation treatment finished I weighed 125 kgs. When it was finished five weeks later, I was 102. So I lost 23 kgs. Yeah, almost 25 kgs in a very short amount of time. And you know that, I don't know what you call it, but like that that cancer look, you know, that gaunt kind of cheek sunken in, really thin looking, like you just... Like you just know that look mm. that people that are going through chemotherapy and even that, the eyes eyes yeah, look darker, right? Yeah, and that's and and obviously it was a fan a fantastic day with family. We only had like forty people there. It wasn't a ginormous wedding, um, but so you know only the you know closest family and friends were the people that we had there. Mm. Um, so it was obviously a fantastic day, but just kind of. Yeah, looking looking back at the photos and stuff, it does. They they are kind of hard for us to look at just mm. because it reminds us of such a a shitty time. Yeah. yeah, is that why it was important to do the second wedding in Vegas, um, like a redemption or something? Yeah, well, it was it was kind. Of, well, we, we planned on taking the photos. Um, the photos, by the way, are yeah. amazing. Eh? Incredible. Yeah. yeah, we we planned on doing the photos again, but doing like a pretend ceremony. That was we, we were looking at maybe doing it, but it was it was like a spur of the moment type thing. But because Bailey was working over there, there's a um, you know, like Bravo, the TV channel. Mm. Um, there was a like a like a convention thing over there called BravoCon, and um. Bailey was doing the styling and makeup artistry, I suppose that's what you call it, for, um, a, you know, that TV show Below Deck? Um, yeah, there's a couple of Kiwi girls. Yeah, Katie and Asia. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Um, that feature on those shows quite prominently. So she did, so um, they hired Bailey to basically do all the glam stuff. Um, and yeah, the with the night that that had finished, we were, 
all all out um just at the various places up and down the strip and because we were planning on doing it maybe if it was like a free afternoon we could sneak off to the the chapel and have a little pretend one but you know bailey was busy on her feet all day and by the time she was finished she was just like no nah, let's just go back to the room we're too tired <laughs> room yeah. service and sleep yeah and um yeah on, on that last night um katie asked bailey so did you guys ever end up going to the chapel or, or not nah? and then so yeah we were on this um on this party bus and um she was like well why don't we just do it now so we yeah so i wasn't dressed wedding appropriate at all i was just basically what i'm wearing now (laughs) (laughs) jorts and jordans um i think i had jeans on but basically it might have been this exact outfit actually if the if these shorts were a little bit longer well i appreciate um, you wearing your wedding suit to the podcast today but um but yeah so it was kind of uh you know kind of one of those well you know, one of those. Oh, well, we're in Vegas. We might as well do it. So, um, so, so was this the little white chapel where I think there's been Kardashian weddings, Britney yeah, Spears? It, yeah, it was obviously um, not an official one because mm. we're married already. But, um, but we did that, and then um, he then the next day there's this maybe twenty minutes, half an hour out of Vegas. There's this. Um, it's like an art installation thing called seven magic mountains and they're just these I, I think they're made out of fiberglass i don't know what they're made of but they're these tall kind of stone hingey looking formation things and they just painted a whole bunch of different colors and um aisha's partner um his name's scott he's he he's a really good photographer because he's um he's like hardcore into like para so like hang gliding but like doing it i don't but doing it really fast and he has all the gopro camera stuff and he records himself while he's doing it and we were like do you want to take the photos and he was like yep so he pulled out all this fancy camera equipment and yeah so and he he took some really uh phenomenal photos it was uh um it's a public place and there were lots of people there so we couldn't tell people to bugger off bugger off or we take our photos um, so yeah, we we photoshopped the people that were in the background out of the. Oh, actually, <laughs> yeah. actually, yeah, and, oh, don't tell yeah. people that that ruins the illusion. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> they're, they're real pictures, but there were people in the background that aren't there in the actual pictures. But um, oh, but, that's but, awesome. Yeah, but at the same time, it was a really windy day. Um, so in the background, that if you look at the pictures there's a it's like there's a sandstorm in the background like sand twirling around all over the place like that wasn't camera trickery either that was that actual there so we got there and we walked out of the car and it was just like we were like is this even going to be doable but we because it was it wasn't just a little bit of wind it was really really windy but um yeah we took we just waited for brief little moments when the wind kind of calmed down a little bit and mm. yeah, in the desert with the, the cactus or cacti and um, the sand, the little sandstorm in the background with uh, um, yeah, just that kind of desert kind of Vegas backdrop. Yeah. They were, they were, the, the photos turned out really good and yeah, just having, having those ones, you know, if you compare what I look like in those ones to what I compared to what I look like in the 
and the other ones it's yeah it's a pretty significant difference in terms of just physical appearance yeah and i suppose like from a a, like a mental perspective like in the first ones you're um you just have like i suppose walking through the through the forest and in the second ones in vegas like you're out of the woods yeah oh well i never thought of putting it that way but but metaphorically i guess that's that's actually a pretty good way of looking at it now um i believe so yeah you're over there for this bravo con thing and um you guys had to sign you were parting with the below deck people so you had to sign ndas so you weren't allowed to talk about anything that went on i read that somewhere is that right but basically yeah Yeah. we we yeah i I don't know i don't understand tv people the legality type you you don't seem like a gossip anyway so you sign this contract but not gonna tell anyone. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um but yeah that's and that's why so yeah there were yeah there were a bunch of people there mm-hmm. and um so yeah what originally just started off as a oh let's just go get a few go to a few bars in vegas and see what it's like um yeah kind of turned into this pretty pretty wild type mm-hmm. of type of thing because I, I messaged um aisha for some goss because uh, yeah. i've been going backwards and forwards with her getting her on the podcast <laughs> yeah. And she replied, um, hello, oh man, I wish I had something juicier for you, but I only had one night with them and I was too busy dancing with my cooch out on the stripper stripper pole party bus. So, <laughs> does that sound familiar? Um, yep, that sounds, yeah. that sounds like something she would say. <laughs> yeah. uh, with my cooch out on the stripper pole party bus to notice what anyone else was doing. Um, Alex is always very well behaved. Ha, ha, ha. Please say hi from me. Um, and thank you. I'm so scared of, proud of Scott for his photos. Have yeah. fun today. Because I, I mentioned how good the photos looked. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. Oh, that must yeah, have been special. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you, so you're married now, into, settling into married life. This might be too much of a personal question. I don't know. But um, as a result of the cancer, are there any fertility issues that you know of? Like, do you uh, want to have a family? No, there, there aren't. There were there's as far as i'm aware like we haven't tried but you know we we would like to do that but you know we've you know the first year and a half of our marriage really was kind of that wasn't your typical married life so Mm -hmm. we'd um so yeah that's something that we talk about often but we just for the time being um just have a break and enjoy each other kind of just we'd like a a little bit of time where it's just us before we kind of before we kind of add to it so you know that's that's definitely a thing that we want to do down the track but um but yeah we're kind of just while we getting our lives back on track and kind of putting that chapter behind us um mm. yeah we're kind of kind of enjoying it just being the two of us at the moment mm. yeah geez I, I pity her eventually giving birth to your kids they're gonna be big babies <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's yeah we're gonna have a Five foot three, yeah. five foot three boy or a six ten girl. There's what one? It'll be one of those two. I know. Oh, yeah, imagine the, the, the doctor pulling the baby out yeah. like a magician's <laughs> hanky or something. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, that will that will the okay the bowel cancer journey. We'll get into that now. And um, is this hard for you to talk about, or can you, um, you sort of do it on autopilot now, or are you quite relaxed yeah, talking uh, about I, it? Since yeah, you're... I I have no problem talking about yeah. it at all. I guess you know the 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 details especially in the early part of it um you know it's it's bleak yeah yeah it's not something that you'd want to be talking about around the dinner table Mm. (laughs) but um but yeah yeah. i've I've heard you i've heard you talk about on a couple of different podcasts and a couple of different chats and um 
I mean, the good thing about a podcast is it's the, the platform that allows for it, but bowel cancer is such a big thing, but it's, it isn't talked about because it's not a sexy chat. Um, but I think someone like you and also Dean Barker, who I've had on the podcast talking about it, I think it's really good for awareness and stuff. I think yeah. it's really powerful. Yeah, it's, um, yeah it's, it's the second deadliest cancer in New Zealand, and statistically somebody dies from it every eight hours you know it's you it's know, shocking it's, it's yeah, and, and unfortunately you know that number is trending in the wrong direction unfortunately mm. um and yeah I, I guess it's because especially for men it's it involves an area of the body that they don't feel overly comfortable talking about and probably don't want doctors and other people prodding around and, and having a look um so yeah it's unfortunately one of those ones where you know the bowel cancer symptoms it's not always immediately obvious that that's what it is you know the bowel cancer symptoms are also the symptoms for several other mm. less serious things and a lot of the time people and unfortunately doctors and gps as well especially if you're a younger person um you know they assume that it's one of those other things, especially if you're a young and healthy person. Um, you know, I saw multiple cause I, I, I hadn't been feeling well for months leading up to my, my diagnosis. Yeah. So, so go, so go right back to the beginning. So, um, like how did it start, um, appearing for you? How did it start manifesting? Like what, what did it look like in the, early um, day? well, the main thing was, um, like abdominal pain um sometimes it was quite severe other times it was pretty mild um a little a little bleeding but not much and you're still um, yeah yeah um but the biggest thing was constantly feeling like i needed to go and then i'd go to the bathroom and nothing would happen that was the well the majority of the time mm. nothing would happen um and some days it would be you know every couple of hours that would happen and then there were other days where it was like it felt like it was every 20 minutes it's like like i feel urgently like i need to go go to the bathroom nothing would happen 20 minutes later same thing half an hour later same thing and it was just um yeah so i i saw multiple multiple gps who kind of you know it was it's it was a stressful time in everyone's mm. lives really because you know we just moved back from Australia and there was a pandemic and yeah, it was kind of a stressful time because, you know, some symptoms can present themselves when you're going through difficult periods and everyone and pretty much everyone in the world was at that time. Mm. So, um, you know, they kind of put it down to that and I got I like the, stress. Yeah. Stress. And, um, but yeah, there was, it was, uh, the 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 night everything was discovered like the the day you know where we had that really good training and handed out the winning invitations that day mm. um that night before i went to a and e um the little bit of blood that would come out every so often turned into uh you know a, a lannisters send their regards type bloodbath type thing for sorry to gross anyone no, 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 no. but um no, you lost you lost li but, liters of blood didn't you yeah and so it was, was like a it was almost like you were hemorrhaging from the from yeah the yeah, anus. yeah yeah it wasn't 
it wasn't like a tap. Like it wasn't like I was just standing there and it was just, but just like, like a constant yeah, drip yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, like I mentioned, where I'd feel, you know, I feel like I need to go. Nothing would happen. Twenty minutes later, nothing would happen. Half an hour later, like that. It was kind of like I'd feel like I'd need to go, and it would, and it would just be straight blood and then it would stop and then half an hour the same thing half an hour the same thing so i was like okay well something's that's definitely not supposed to be happening um so yeah we we went to a and e that night um they were obviously quite concerned mm. um so i they took me out back and they measured the amount of blood that i was losing um and once they started measuring they gave me something i can't remember what it was called but some sort of drip thing um that causes like your blood to clot a little bit just to to stop it um and once that stuff had kicked in and it had and it had stopped um you know when they started measuring and when it stopped i'd lost two and a half liters and that doesn't include the stuff that was at home and when I was in the waiting room waiting to be seen, um, you know, obviously they weren't counting that because I wasn't in there yet. But so it probably would have been around four liters and you have, <laughs> and you have just over double that. I think you, the, the to average person has about 10 liters. So you're almost bleeding so, to death. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it, it was, yeah, it wasn't just a little bit of blood. It was a very, significant amount i had to have multiple um blood transfusions and um either like whole blood or like the you know particular like white blood cells red blood like they they because i'd be getting blood tests a couple of times a day just to test the levels and so yeah i was um yeah i had lost so much that they yeah they they basically just had to give me more <laughs> so uh, yeah. fuck you must have been just be well you and bailey must have been just like bewildered petrified scared yeah you, you must yeah. and you so the, the cancer wasn't diagnosed and obviously there's testing and stuff that needs to go but you must you you knew deep down yeah well when the bleeding had stopped um one of the surgeons came to check me out and he you know did the old finger up the backside mm. test and he literally he said that he felt it with the tip of his finger that's wow. why I, I couldn't see his face at the time but bailey said because this this doctor was a young uh a younger guy he would have been probably not much older than me um and bailey was telling me you know it was like the like the the moment he knew what it was you know his face was you know mm-hmm. when you're a doctor you sometimes have to give people bad news and yeah just yeah he 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 really struggled like like he he was like obviously he didn't know for sure but just based on his experience he told us he basically didn't sugarcoat things and i think because he was a younger doctor it was perhaps the first time he'd have to get he'd given someone news like that because you know his voice was trembling a little bit and he was as he was as white as a ghost because mm. he kind of 
that he, I think he realised what he'd stumbled upon. Yeah. Uh, Maybe he drew mess because he thought he was okay with blood, and yeah. then he saw that amount of blood and was like, yeah. this isn't and, the occupation. Um, and then, yeah, when he did that, and it's like, oh, God, I have to tell this guy who's, you know, mid-early 30s that he's highly likely got cancer, and obviously that mm. was confirmed over the next couple of days with all the uh, all the tests and stuff. So, yeah, it was a pretty, yeah, the 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 look on bailey's face will kind of be forever ingrained in my brain i think i don't think i've seen like a just worry like like, like a look of kind of terror and just worry on i don't think i've ever seen that on somebody's face before so um what does she say about the look on your face um (laughs) similar sort of thing it it was it was quite similar you know i i put on especially for her yeah. and my and my mum i put on kind of like a a brave front like a like a yeah i'm going to be all right i'm going to get through this kind of outwardly that's what i put out but on the inside i was showing like, yourself i was like fuck me like it's like the the it took probably two or three days for the between you know when the doctor made that discovery before they'd done all the tests and got the results and they knew what the entire they knew exactly what we were dealing with um and yeah that that was a very long 48-ish kind of hours just you know yeah you know people you know say you know i just got to remain positive but you know when you're kind of staring death in the face a little bit it's kind of it's pretty hard not to go to some kind of dark that dark dark kind of places you did it did it feel like you were staring staring death in the face potentially um what what do they what do they say to you when when, i mean it's all it's all speculative isn't it but did they did they say like the chance of survival or the chance of well they they said they because i went after i got like the mri and the ct scan done we and they got all the results back we went into this room and the doctor um I guess they kind of just have to be as emotionless as possible. Um, but she was just like, oh, yep, it's curable and it's this and it's, and I was like, because the biggest question I had, I was like, the thing that was freaking me out the most was like, had it spread anywhere? Mm. Was it just there or was it in a bunch of other places as well? Because I hadn't been feeling well. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about cancer growth rates and how quickly it spreads around it probably varies from person to person but i was like i i so yeah i don't know how quickly cancer develops Mm. and i and i'd been feeling well unwell for you know quite a while but not it wasn't like it had been years or anything like that but yeah so i was just like so as so yeah there's like she showed me the picture there was like this black dot on it and i was like is that it and i was like is that the only black dot that's on this picture (laughs) and she was like yep so yeah it's all it's all contained in one area it's in an operable area and we think it's um you know it's definitely curable which was um which i was very very, yeah kind of encouraged like, like kind of lucky but unlucky but lucky at the same time mm. in a way yeah yes yeah, so, so just going right back to the beginning of this like in, in hindsight what could you have done differently because it seems like you did everything right like you you yeah. you know what i mean like so, so you you when you had blood in your stool you you talked to bailey about it 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and did she make you go to the doctor or you just want to yeah, go to the doctor on yeah, your own? Yeah, well, I, I'd spoken to my mum as well because my mum works in the medical field. Mm. Um, she's not a doctor, but she does. She works for the Waikato yeah. District Health Board. Because um, so it seems she, like you did yeah, all the right things. Yeah, so she, she was pushing me because, and, you know, there's a not insignificant family history Okay. On my mother's side as well. So she was really pushing me to go. And it's like, when you'd go see a doctor, push that, you know, there's been family history. Um, but yeah, I kind of just got, I wouldn't say I just got dismissed, but kind of, I, I, I did get the, you're too young, you're too, you're too young, you know, being a sports person, it's like you're, you know, young, healthy people this doesn't happen to them so um yeah so it's kind of it, it is scary to think if that um you know that mass i don't know that that massive bleeding that happened i don't know what caused it um but i'm pretty lucky that it happened because if it didn't um you may not have got the action i i i, I uh, I, I'm not going to say, oh, I definitely would have died or mm. something like that. But, you know, I, it definitely would have been discovered at a much later stage. Um, and God knows what would have happened. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of not a thing that I like thinking about too much. Yeah. But well, you, you don't seem like a, like a, a, a guy that holds on to anger or a grudge holder, <laughs> but are you annoyed at those doctors? Um, I would be. I'd be fucking yeah, pissed off. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. But also at the same time, it's kind of like you know they they don't have X ray vision. They can't mm. just go oh yeah, and you know they probably see lots of people who present with similar things, and you probably just can't mm. automatically assume that everybody has cancer. Um. So yeah, it, it's kind of it's kind of a thing that I go back and forth on. It's like you probably could have been more thorough, and you know the the young person assumption is probably something that people should stop assuming. But at the same time, you know, it's it's yeah, it's kind of hard to say. It's kind of yeah, you, you do you feel frustrated and a little bit dismissed, but at the same time. I don't think you can just assume, like you, I don't think you can expect people to just assume that everybody who presents with a sore stomach and has trouble going to the bathroom, yeah, I don't think, oh yeah, you have cancer. I don't think that's mm. the first thing that you can always assume, but it's kind of, it is just one of those tricky kind of things. Yeah, maybe they need to, they need to start like taking more care with that stuff as well. I mean, there's um, yeah. there's there's big pushes now with bowel cancer in New Zealand, and uh, yeah. you know the likes of you and Dean Barker mm -hmm. talking about this. I think that's fantastic. It creates awareness, and hopefully, yeah. the this um these deaths every eight hours in New Zealand from bowel cancer, that number can be reduced. Um, but definitely a little bit of help from doctors as well. <laughs> you know, taking these symptoms seriously when they're presented. Yeah. Um, maybe that'll go a long way as well. Like I said, so you're diagnosed with um, the cancer and then I suppose the, the real hard work starts. What, what's, what's that like, the treatment? Um, it was pretty brutal to be yeah. honest. It was you scared going into it. Yeah. It was, it was kind of, it, it was, it was just cause, 
I'd never been through anything like it before. And it was, yeah, it was, so I, I started with the, because the, the thing that made mine tricky was, because it was, it was, it was stage three A. So for people who don't know, like there's, you know, like stage one, two, three, and four, but there's, there's stages within the stages as well you know there's stage one abc two abc blah 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 blah, and so on and so i was stage three but i was closer to stage two than i was to stage four if that makes sense. So stage four means there's no more treatment they can do and no no stage four doesn't mean terminal that okay. means that it's spread to other places so okay it's, so it's a lot okay again it's not i'm simplifying yeah, it sure. what probably oversimplifying it quite a bit but um, any oncologist will listen to this, they'll be like, "What's yeah. he on there?" <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah. So having you know, I over the course of the last couple of years, I've come across several people who have had stage four mm. diagnosis and have survived. It's just it depends on where it spreads to and how much it has. And yeah. but the but the thing, so mine, I was stage three A, so I was closer to stage two than I was to stage four. But so. It definitely wasn't great, but it could have been a lot worse. But the thing that made mine complicated is where it, where it was, um, like where in the bowel it was, because, um, you know, a lot of the time, you know, it kind of starts here, it goes up and then across a little bit and then up across and then it starts down here. So if it's kind of, like say it's an across the, the part across the top, they can quite often just, you know, find, you know, pick a, a, a margin of how much on each side they mm-hmm. want to go. And again, very oversimplified diff- um, kind of explanation of what they do. But That's essentially good. they cut it and cut it out and then stitch the two ends back together um, and that's kind of what they do but the for me the thing that was made it so complicated is mine because obviously the doctor as i mentioned before he felt it so it was close to the exit for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term so obviously when they cut it they they remove it um and they attach the two ends together there has to be another end to attach it to. So, um, and mine was so close to the anus, the, basically close to the exit, right? That they were afraid that. So I that that's why I went through that intensive radiation treatment because they wanted to shrink it so that they had a little more tissue to work with when they removed it and reattached mm. it. Um. And and the and the because it was right on the borderline of that actually not being possible. Like they, they you know, they they going into the surgery. They thought after I'd done the initial, you know, that five weeks of radiation treatment, they thought the surgeon believed there was enough healthy tissue there to make a resection or reattachment. A viable option but they weren't going to know for sure until they actually got in there um so you know it was you know it was 
it was on the board that they might not be able to do that so they might just have to you know they'd cut the top and i'd have like a a stoma pouch permanently um and you know they'd basically from there down they'd remove it and stitch the old backside up (laughs) so um, so this this pouch like a colostomy bag yeah that they they well i i knew that i was going to have one of those right from the get-go so knowing um they they were pretty honest just because of where it was located they they told me right from the get-go that you you are having one of these no matter what but the the only question they couldn't ask answer was is it going to be temporary or is it going to be permanent and they're Mm. not they're not going to know the answer to that until they actually do the operation and how effective that initial round of treatment was. So, so in, in your mind, I mean, this is a, this is a huge like life up, upheaval, isn't it? Yeah. But in, in your mind, are you thinking, are you telling yourself this is going to be temporary or are you just saying, okay, Alex, you need um, to accept this might be your new normal. Yeah. I, I came to terms with the fact that that's just, that might just be how it is pretty early on that's a lot to deal with (laughs) yeah um so yeah basically the the temporary because what they wanted to do what 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 their plan for the operation was was to you know above the tumor cut below cut and obviously below there was a very small amount of Mm. tissue that they'd be able to attach it to they and so they wanted to reattach it and i'd have a temporary stoma over here um while and i'd have it for like a year or so while that healed and then they'd reverse it and theoretically everything would kind of work not exactly the way it used to but about as close to the way Mm. it used to but if they got into the operation and decided that that wasn't viable or what they saw on the mri wasn't exactly how it was when they got in there um yeah, so I going into the operation, I didn't know what I was going to be waking up to. Um, I guess you could say that about any operation, really. Mm. But but you know, a truly life or death, like life altering type one. You know, basically, if I woke up, if I felt the bag on the side, it was temporary. If I felt it on the side, that's how it was going to be, and that was basically the first thought that entered my mind when I woke up after the operation. I just went like this and i felt it here and i was like okay so i'm gonna have this this is how it is for about a year um and then we'll see see how it all all functions when it gets reversed so yeah it it was a bit of uh it took obviously when you spend 34 years of your life going the normal way then all of a sudden you have this thing attached to your front and uh that's kind of where it goes um but I actually got used to it quite quickly. I think obviously being told right from the get-go, whether it's temporary or permanent, we can't tell you, but you're having it no matter what. So basically wrap your head around it mm. now. So um, yeah, so kind of I did, I read quite a bit about what it's like and I was kind of a co- coincidentally um, one of the Sharks assistant, well, he wasn't the assistant coach at that time, but he had been in previous years. Um, he had, 
ulcerative colitis, which is like another inflammatory like bowel condition. So he had one of he had what I had for um, about a year a little earlier on in his life. So he told me a little bit about what to expect and what it's like and the process of changing it and how they function and stuff like that. So I kind of um, felt a little bit like I knew what was going to happen. Obviously, you know, the just the weirdness of it. Um, yeah, so what, what, yeah. what is it like? like? Like, What would you just say to someone, if you were having the same conversation to someone else that was about to go through it, well, what is it like and what is the process of changing it? And- well, the, well, obviously the biggest, the, you have to have the pouch on all day, every day, because, you know, unlike, you know, like if you're sitting in the car in rush hour traffic and you need to go, you can obviously squeeze and you can hold it till you get home. With this, you can't do that. So when it's go time, it's go time, and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. So can, so, can you feel yourself going? Or oh, oh just, yeah, you, yeah. You, can, you can feel it, yeah. Like you can kind of, it's kind of a strange feeling that you get used to every so often, but you can kind of feel it moving around and then you know when it's about to happen. Like it doesn't, like it doesn't, like it's like a discreet type thing. It doesn't make any loud noises or or or, any, or, in, or anything like that. So, and and, and the, you, yeah. you didn't need to worry about panic buying toilet paper during the pandemic. So no, that's a bonus. That, that was that was one bonus. Um, but yeah, so yeah, so yeah, that that's the biggest thing. You have no con, you have no control over when it, you know, when it decides to work. Basically, um, so that's why you have to have the pouch on it all the time. And because what I had was called an an ileostomy or an ileostomy so it was the part that was it wasn't the main like your large bell that they brought out to the surface it was the end of the small one um so that part is obviously a lot more active so i'd probably have to go to the bathroom just to empty the pouch five or six times a day um so you constantly, you never sort of um, yeah. forget that it's there. Like oh, you're oh, constantly oh, aware. No, no, you're yeah, you're always aware that it's there. And then yeah, so um, yeah, so I'd I'd have to change have to change it every couple of days. There was the stuff that you put on around the outside of outside of it just to protect your skin a little bit, just because you have this adhesive thing stuck to it all the time. Um. And yeah, so I got pretty used to the process of putting that stuff on, then cutting the hole in the back of the because you have to because you have you you don't just cut a hole and put it on because you know you don't want that stuff touching any exposed skin. So you kind of had to make the shape of it so that it conforms around it as perfectly as you can, so that you have as little exposed skin as possible. Mm. And, um, so yeah, it took a little bit of time to figure out that process and, um, and just figuring out how to do it because it does have a mind of its own. Like I said before, you can't stop it from working. So there were times where I'd, I'd chuck a towel on the floor and I'd kind of just sit there and I'd be cleaning around the outside of it and just making sure it was ready for the next thing. And then all of a sudden decided it was go time so i'd have to go through that whole process again so there were so yeah there were a little it took a little bit of time to figure out you know eventually once you know the swelling and inflammation and stuff had kind of settled down 
you know, you get in, I kind of got into a routine of eating at the same time each day. And so you'd kind of get some kind of consistency when knowing when stuff was going to, when it was going to work. Yeah. Just controlling the controllables. Yeah. So, um, but again, it had a mind of its own, so mm. it decided, okay, well, it's go time. Um, nothing I, you could there, do. There was nothing I could do to stop it. And I'm, I'm sure, um, I'm sure Bailey was um, fine with it. But what, what about you? Did you find it embarrassing, or did you get over that pretty uh, quickly? Or n- nah, there was like, I mean, I didn't walk around going, "Hey, look what I've got." <laughs> but um, so yeah, so yeah, there was no, there was no kind of. Yeah, there was there was no embar- like no okay. embarrassing things kind of happened, and I wasn't, um, you know. And if there were times, because I because I could like swim and do stuff with it on, and I'd just like tuck it into my shorts, and a little bit of it was showing at the top. But um, so yeah, it was never something that I was embarrassed like embarrassed mm. about. There was one. Oh, that's good. There was one time in public where the seal broke so i kind of had to hold it down and i quickly had to go home so i could change it but outside of um stuff like that i never yeah there was never any kind of yeah yeah i'd wear kind of loose fitting clothing so that you couldn't see like the imprint of it Mm. so yeah it's kind of yeah if you didn't know who i was um you know you probably wouldn't have known that um that anything was even wrong so if if that um if things had been different and that ended up being just your reality for the rest of your life that you still would have been sort of okay with that oh yeah it would have been fine yeah, like yeah, like, yeah. The, the, like i it kind of because i had it i had the main operation that i had was in sep- yeah september 2021 and i got it reversed in november last year so i had it for just 14, a, 14 months yeah. yeah so just over a year and it kind of it kind of just became like my new normal like i got used to it and and it, yeah it, it, after the initial mm. adjustment period um that's kind of just how it was um humans are adaptable yeah, eh? yeah. we're very adaptable so yeah. so you, the 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 treatment was done in dunedin so you were traveling from um southland to dunedin and and this is um during covid times so this is like social distancing this is masks yeah. this is only get treatment if it's absolutely necessary yeah. so, so when you're lying in that bed are, are, are you are you thinking of basketball or your career at all or is that the furthest thing from your mind you're oh, just thinking about survival yeah yeah that was yeah basketball was Way down. I was put was very low on the list of things that I was worrying about. It was, um, yeah, I, I basically, I had very minimal energy to put towards anything except just making sure that I did everything possible treatment wise and health wise overall, and just making sure mentally I was in a good space and, um yeah it was that that was really all that i had energy for just because Mm. it was it was a pretty draining a pretty draining kind of time yeah mentally yeah were you in a good space at that time how was your mental health um well as i mentioned earlier that two days between the initial this is what it is and then we know what the full story is 
um that that was pretty dark but um but yeah after obviously my long-term prognosis was obviously quite good you know it wasn't you know a, a doom and gloom mm. you know lance armstrong type thing we have five percent chance of survival mm. or whatever it was for him um you know my long term like it was i was in for a pretty rough year and a half through all the for all the treatment and surgeries and stuff but you know long term things were looking pretty good so i had a lot to feel good about um and you know some people you know i i started making jokes about it and like making like butt jokes and stuff like that um <laughs> though, like those kind of things just to or just to try and disarm the people around you or just as like a like a coping yeah mechanism type thing like the, like during the meeting because you know the, you lie in your bed and the doctors come around and visit everybody tell them what's happening and they were basically going over the you know the what the plan was and what they want to do and you know what a stoma is and how that's going to work mm. and all that kind of stuff and i was like um well it gives new meaning to the to the saying rip you a new one doesn't it <laughs> so um so kind of you know it was yeah you know, it was kind of like uh you know some some people would be like oh it's cancer why would you joke about that but it's just kind of you know it's like oh. a coping mechanism that kind of helped me get through it yeah it helps you get through yeah. it and also it's very um i suppose it's quite disarming for the people around you as well yeah. like a yeah because yeah it was quite the old alex is yeah. still there <laughs> yeah it was it was quite good when they you know they're, they're in there obviously having a mm. very serious conversation and then you know just then trying to hold back a little mm. a few laughs it kind of just yeah made it feel like it wasn't all doom and gloom yeah and I mean, to to spend fifteen years at the top level of um of any high performance team, yeah. um, it takes a certain amount of resilience and a certain sort of person. But um, did you learn much about yourself in terms of resilience through this cancer journey? Yeah, I, tougher I, than what you thought you would be. Yeah, I, I guess the it's hard to say exactly what you learned about yourself, but I guess mm. the biggest difference between me now is I, yeah, it kind of just puts, you know. All, all the little things that you worry about and you stress about, you know, there, you know, at, at the end of the, you know, you know, they're small things, you know, I don't sweat small stuff as much as I used to. And it's kind of just, I've, I've learned how, I don't want to sound like I'm profit or anything, but like how much, how much power the mind has over your body and how, keeping a positive mindset um and not kind of giving in to kind of like the the dark kind of thoughts how just how how much because there were days where it was just doom and gloom and i'd just be sitting there thinking like what the fuck man like what like why is this happening to me and you know then you know i just decided like but you know you compare how you feel with those days compared to the days when you're you know making jokes and you know actively choose to you know focus on the the more positive mm. things you know like the the long term prognosis is good and you know i'm getting married soon and all that you know focusing on the positive things how much it just significantly has over over just how you're over how you feel um mm. 
just realizing how important that is. Yeah. yeah. And did you get to ring the bell at the end of your treatment? Is that, is that a thing? Dean Barker um, was telling me, maybe it's not a thing in New Zealand oncology wards, but he said there's a, a moment where you finish your treatment where you get to ring the ring a bell. Um, and he, the nurses and doctors stand around oh, clapping. No, I never rung any bell. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe the hospital he had had a bell. I don't know. Yeah, after my after the initial, like after the main operation, like not the not the one where it got the stoma got reversed, but the main one where they removed the tumor. Um, I had six months of post-operative chemotherapy after that. Mm. Um, that was because, you know, they they cut it out, they they remove the section of bowel that it's in and they look at the edge of the bowel of the part that they cut out and the edge of the part that's still there and they test to see if there are any, and then they remove lymph nodes from that area as well and they test all of that for, can, um, for cancerous cells because, you know, obviously a single cancer cell is not going to show up on like an MRI or anything. Mm. So... All of those tests came back um, like positive, so they all came back clear, like they didn't detect anything in any of that stuff that they removed. Um, but they suggested, just because I was a young guy, having that six months of chemotherapy afterwards, um, any rogue cells that are kind of left around in there, it can help get rid of those, or it would get rid of those, and it and studies show that it significant like nothing can ever guarantee that it won't come back, but it significantly um, decreases the likelihood of it coming back. So yeah, um, that was that was a very very long six months. It was um, twelve rounds of um, there was one. God, I can't remember the name of them now, but they. There was one that was like an IV that they did at the hospital. It took about three hours, and then there was another one that they connected to the line, and it had it was like in a little bubble and a tube, and that um, I'd take that home, and it would take about two or three days um, to kind of slowly pump that through, um, and that was every two weeks for for six months. So that was that was a pretty significant, um, yeah, and it was kind of. Um, I I actually got off quite lucky with some of the some of the side effects. You reckon? Well, <laughs> because there was, you know, it's they they were saying that it they give you the laundry list of potential side effects before you start it, um, and you know the the more significant ones were, you know, nerve ending damage to your fingers and your feet, and and making you really, really susceptible to cold. So like touching cold things, drinking cold, cold things. You were living in Dunedin and Southland as well. Oh, oh no, I was back in Hamilton. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Cause yeah. Cause I, cause I had the, um, the operation up in Hamilton. Oh, gotcha. Um, yeah. So I was back in Hamilton at this point and you know, they were say like they said, um, you know, when you get into the thick of the treatment, you know, if you get like a like a like a non room temperature drink, like something out of the fridge, it will feel like you're swallowing ice, like or like you're swallowing glass, like it's that that that's how painful it is. It's painful to touch stuff that is cold. 
and i i got a little bit of that but not really significant like it was a little bit sensitive during the period where i'd have that take home thing um it would probably linger for a day or two after and then it would be okay um and as it went on that day or two that it lingered would be an extra day or two an extra Mm. day or two and then yeah so yeah it was 12 rounds and luckily um you know some people i know have had to finish because it can cause permanent nerve damage and stuff like that if you if it affects you really badly so quite a few people that go through the same process that i have um they don't get through the whole 12 rounds because it's kind of like fixing one thing but create like fixing one problem creating another yeah, like creating whack-a-mole. another one yeah so um yeah so there are some people that you know they get to the eighth or ninth cycle and they just stop because you know they can't feel mm-hmm. the tips of their fingers and mm-hmm. they're walking around and they can't really feel their feet or their toes or stuff like that so i was fortunate that i was able to well not fortunate because it sucked but, <laughs> no, but yeah, i've noticed this you've done but, this a yeah, few times you you, yeah. you do have a good this really good ability at looking for the positives yeah, because, looking for the silver lining yeah because um yeah i was lucky lucky enough that i it didn't affect my body badly enough that I had to finish it before the 12 cycles mm. were finished. So you yeah, said so during this, um, how, like how do you, how do you not give up on yourself? So you, you know, you start this treatment, mm. like, uh, it's grueling, it's hard, you're tired, you're exhausted, you, you feel like you've been beaten up and you know that you've got round after round after round to go. Like, how do you just keep going? I, I guess, just because yeah, there's no other option, yeah. The, 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 that's basically it. Sometimes you you're presented with something, and you you kind of just have to get on with it. It's kind of that, 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 and that that's kind of what my mindset was like right from the very beginning. Like, obviously, if my long term prognosis wasn't as good, um, you know, my attitude towards fighting it would have been exactly the same. But you know, if I had stage four cancer i probably wouldn't have been making butt jokes around the hospital but um (laughs) but um but you know so you know it was kind of it was kind of my attitude right from the get-go like once i'd had that initial meeting about exactly what we were dealing with and what the treatment plan looked like over the next year or so it was kind of you know i had my week or so to be angry and sad and cry and laugh and just go through the whole whole spectrum of of emotion and then it was like all right well i know what i have to do now so now i just have to get on with it Mm. so that was so yeah like like that post-operative chemotherapy that wasn't a surprise like i knew that that was part of the overall plan um so i was kind of i knew that after the operation that that was the hard part but i knew that i wasn't done um so yeah that's kind of what got me through to the end it was kind of it was around the point where where i was around it like the seventh or eighth kind of thing like i was over the hump but i still had like five more to Mm. go so it was like yeah it's kind of i don't know if you ever did the miq the two weeks in the hotel at any point i don't know if you did that but you know they nine and ten were probably the worst because it's like 
we've been in here for over, like we're over halfway, but there's still so long. To <laughs> yeah, go. yeah. And that that's kind of what it was like. It was kind of yeah, but as the finish line got a bit closer, mm. and just knowing that that I was that I was close to the yeah. end. And, and and the the day you find out you're cancer free is it a dramatic moment? Like you know the results are coming. You wake up that morning and you know you're getting a phone call and it's going to be good or bad. Yeah. Or do you have a sense it's going to be fine? And um, yeah, well I. It, like if everything, obviously the initial diagnosis was shocking, but everything that happened after that had been quite positive. You know, the, when I, cause when the initial, the, the, when the five weeks of radiation therapy in Dunedin had finished, um, I, cause yeah, there was like 10 weeks between when that treatment finished and then when I had the operation, because even though when it finished, when it's finished, it's, it still works. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, about a month after maybe, yeah, maybe not long after our wedding, a week or so after our wedding, I went back and had some more tests done and, um, you know, the, the tumor had shrunk quite a significant amount. So, you know, that was obviously a positive thing. And then when I woke up, um, after the operation, you know, the stoma was on the side, which means they believe the reattachment or the resection was viable. That was obviously a positive thing. So yeah, I, it, everything had gone well, um, up until that point. So when I was waiting for the phone call after the operation, when they'd done all the testing on the, on the section that they removed, you know, it's not like I was sitting, I wasn't sitting at home going, oh, I've had two or three good things in a row. I'm due a bad thing. Mm. You know, yeah, I wasn't thinking like that at all. I was, um, you know, I had no reason to believe that anything had gone wrong. Everything that they had told me post-op, post-op when I woke up, they said it went basically exactly how they thought or how they hoped it would. Um, and yeah, when I got the phone call saying they've, they've done all the testing and, um, yeah, there wasn't a cancer cell in sight that was, um, yeah, yeah, there were a few, a few happy tears around the, the Pledger household. Like I, cause at the time, cause we'd just moved back up here and we hadn't moved into our house yet. So I was staying at my mum's house. Um, and my mum wasn't at home and the phone rung and I put it on speaker so Bailey could hear and we were both just sitting there like this. And then, yeah. when What, he, sort of expecting yeah. the worst but hoping the best? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah when, when he gave us the news, um, yeah. Um, yeah, there were a few a few happy tears around the household, yeah. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Just the gratitude. Yeah. And the weight off your shoulders. Hey, thanks for being so open about all this today. Is it, is it hard to talk about now or is it quite um, sort of methodical? Or? No, it's not hard to talk about, but I I really only talk about it if people ask me. Yeah, I'm not going to just and it's like, oh, hey, did you hear about that time I had cancer? <laughs> um, yeah, so I like uh, if people ask me, I have no problem talking about yeah. it at all. But um, well, as, I, as I say, yeah. it's not for any sort of gratuitous reason. It's just um, because I think it's incredibly helpful. Like, the more yeah. aware people can be, yeah. it can potentially um, – you save me or some other people that are watching or listening to yeah. us going through the, the, the hell that you've been through. Yeah. So it is, um, yeah, it is nice. Well, it's not nice to receive messages like that, like this, because it means that somebody else is potentially going through the same thing, but I have received some messages on social media and emails and stuff saying, I heard your story 
and I was feeling some of those same symptoms. So I went to see the doctor and, you know, I had a colonoscopy done and there were some precancerous polyps or some sort of early stage cancer was discovered. And yeah, so hearing, you know, just knowing that talking about it and kind of saying what this sharing my experiences knowing that that's um that that's helped a couple of people mm. um uh just from going through potentially something yeah. a lot a lot worse than what they would otherwise um and yeah and i'd i'd encourage anybody to kind of if you just if you notice any sort of difference in the way you feel and the way things function and um yeah i i don't know if it's like a a new zealand thing where you know having that area of your body examined and having people poking and prodding around makes you feel i don't know if it's like oh you know men don't do that you know it's like a like an, like 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 an unmanly thing to do <laughs> yeah um yeah that, that i think that's just kind of a you know if you have 10 minutes feeling uncomfortable in a doctor's office versus 18 months of hell of, of the stuff that i went mm. through um it's not really a choice yeah, yeah like, <laughs> like yeah uh, uh new zealand men we, we do need to get over that like um a, a dude a dude or a, a female nurse having their finger up your up your date for 10 <laughs> seconds 15 seconds yeah. it's not a sexual thing it's not even an embarrassing thing yeah. you don't want their finger up there they don't want their finger to be up there but it's a medical procedure we need yeah. to just get over it and get it done yeah um so how say you were a hundred percent pre-cancer how are you now you you said before you can't have like milky coffees anymore oh what are the I, I, like it's not that i can't it's just that sometimes my um body doesn't react to it very well mm. so when i'm not in the comfort of my own home <laughs> <laughs> i uh i try to avoid the like most things i can eat and i'm perfectly fine um but there's a couple of things that um if i'm away from the house or if i don't know where the closest bathroom is i'll probably avoid them <laughs> but um but yeah in terms of yeah for the last like i said i had the the stoma reversal um in november last year so just over a year ago um and there were a couple of months you know when you when nothing goes through there for 14 months then all of a sudden it starts working again it takes a little bit of time to um but basically cuz you know i had virtually my entire rectum removed so you know that plays a pretty important role in being able to mm. push it out essentially um so basically the lower part of my bowel that was attached down there basically has to learn how to do learn how to do something that it's like sort of reprogram yeah, yeah basically basically learn how to do something that's never done before mm. you know it takes yeah it took um a month or two for things to kind of start working relatively normally you know things were for lack of a better word were quite erratic mm. um for those first couple of months it was kind of like you know 
toilet training basically yeah. <laughs> I was basically a 36 year old toddler but, <laughs> but um but yeah so yeah once um yeah once it all started working normally again um yeah it's life has been pretty much normal to the point where you wouldn't even know something happened mm. um yeah kind of for the last six months or so really and i still i get uh um but i'm on a pretty thorough um like surveillance program i get a um uh a blood test every four months which tests um like a tumor marker in your blood um and that is like everybody has it in that marker and then at a very insignificant level but you know if it elevates to a certain number that's where they can kind of be concerned about it but it's significantly below kind of that where the level is which would cause them to be concerned yeah. and the last four or five ones I've had it's been trending in the downward direction um which is good and yeah I get yearly um ct ct scans just of that whole area and um uh it's called a flexi sig it's kind of a flexible sigmoid oscopy it's kind of like a colonoscopy but instead of going all the way around they just look at the initial part and it's kind of like a the little camera thing is kind of like a hockey stick like it goes in and then it kind of bends round and mm. looks back in the direction that it came in because that lower area is where the cancer was so i get those checks done every uh every year and then the blood test every four months so yeah i'll be on that um surveillance regime for five years and if i can go five consecutive years um with everything being all clear that's when they can officially say that it's, got, it, it, yeah. it, it's gone but um, yeah, I'm about almost two years into that now, and everything has come back clear so far. So mm -hmm. I have I have no reason to believe that uh the that for the next three and a bit years um those results won't be exactly the same. But things are trending good. Yeah. Jeez, um, well, hell of a year, 2023 <laughs> for you. I have, like yeah. retiring from the, it's it's a it feels like it's a real line in the sand in terms of your life. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. The basketball's over. The yeah. cancer touch wood is over. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling about the future? Are you excited? You, you optimistic? You hopeful? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Like, what, the, what, the, what do you want to? What do you want to do next? Um, in terms of career, or I, I honestly don't know. That's probably, you know, people talk about life after basketball and and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, things obviously got thrown in a blender a little bit, so I had to. Mm reevaluate basically my entire life you know um you know i've got uh, a job at the moment which i'm thoroughly enjoying doing um and um you know work and business wise uh, business wise uh for for bailey things are going very well um at the moment as well so you know we've got our we've got our own place um uh that we bought quite a long time ago in hamilton so we're fortunate enough to be um in a position where um obviously things at the moment cost a lot 
so i'm um, so yeah i guess just i'm pretty fortunate to be in a or for us to be in a position where um i don't have to desperately find out what that next thing is going to be mm-hmm. um but yeah like as i mentioned before things um you know bailey had been my cheerleader um my entire basketball career you know she packed up her life and would move around with me to various places when things would happen um and now she's you know on top of all of the stuff that i mentioned that she did during my treatment um she um you know she also um you know started um a business that she runs and things are going pretty well with that so for the time being you know she was my cheerleader for for 10 years so yeah it's kind of cool that kind of things are flipped around and uh you know i'm the i'm the biggest cheerleader for her now yeah oh how good (laughs) oh that's wonderful yeah yeah what a great couple um yeah i would say don't don't rush into whatever's next because there's (laughs) so much life ahead of you uh and uh, i I don't know anyone that's um that's like to, to be as good as what you were at the sport you did, especially for the length of time, the longevity you had, it means you've got a growth mindset and also a winner's mentality. So whatever you do next, yeah. you're going to do fucking well. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a, you know, tw- like for us, um, you know, 2023 was kind of like, a, you know, cause I've been fit and healthy this whole year. It was kind of, for us, it was kind of just a, kind of like a say yes kind of year. Whereas, you know, like we, you know, we went to, it was kind of like a working holiday because she had the, the Bravo Con thing over there. But, you know, so, you know, we went over there, we went to Fiji for a little, little holiday, just the two of us. It was, it was basically our honeymoon two years after we got married because mm. we couldn't go on one when we actually mm. got married. So we did that. So yeah, kind of things where you kind of, yeah, we just kind of decided that this year was going to be the you know, the first year when things were back on track, um, you know, we're just gonna not overthink things and just enjoy, and, enjoy and, being, and just enjoy life being normal again. Mm. Just, um, uh, you know, just the two of us and, um, and yeah, over the next year or so is when I'll really, you know, start to, to focus on what that next step is. But for the, for the time being, I'm just, uh, you know, happy supporting her doing the stuff that she's doing and um and just happy to be to be healthy and and just yeah, just life being back to relative normalcy after the last two and a bit years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so pleased to sit down with you today and <laughs> pleased to see you looking so healthy. Like you're red in the cheeks. You've just got that glow. <laughs> that glow of a healthy person. Yeah. Um yeah, thanks for being so so open and generous with um, your experiences, the good ones and the bad ones. I really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. Yeah, I think it's just, yeah, it's, you know, people talk about mental health and, and all that kind of stuff a lot, especially with men around my sort of age. Mm. And I think just, um, you know, talking to people about things. Obviously, I had a pretty significant health thing. So that's, you know, but fine, you know, what, whatever you, you might be going through, just, um, you know, finding people to, to talk to about mm. those things. Cause most people, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised how many people actually want to help. You know, there are lots of, they kind of, people kind of feel like they're afraid. They don't want to share what's going on because they think people might judge them more. They just kind of blow them off or whatever, but you'd, you'd be surprised how many people 
genuinely want to help. It's not as um, it's an easy thing to say now because things are looking quite positive. But um, yeah, it's it's not always as when you when you're kind of in your own head and you're by yourself. But when you voice those things and talk to people, it's yeah. um, it, it's not as not as doom and gloom. It's it's not always as doom and gloom as it as it might appear yeah. Yeah. Have you, yeah one thing i've found doing this podcast I've, I've done almost 100 episodes now is that vulnerability is sexy as fuck <laughs> <laughs> have you always been good with that or is that just sort of something um, that you've leaned no, into that, that, that's that's something that i've kind of let just basically because i had to yeah yeah <laughs> when, when you were you know it's kind of you know this isn't a thing that you can kind of do on your b- own bottle up and just kind of keep in you know it's you know, when you're going through something as mm. shitty as it was, you kind of just have to, at times, you kind of just have to let it out and tell people how you're feeling. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I went through some pretty dark moments over the last couple of years. And, it, um, yeah, just having having people to talk to about those things, um, yeah, it's yeah it's it's you know people as i said before you know people will kind of put their arms around you and you know try to help you as much as they can which um which you know sometimes just you know a a hug or a chat or just being a set of ears for someone can just be the just be what they need and Mm -hmm. yeah it's yeah it's just I've I've realized over the last couple of years just how how significant and how helpful that kind of thing is. I can't think of a more significant or important message to leave it on. I think that's really yeah. good. <laughs> Alex Pledger, one of the goats of New Zealand <laughs> basketball, yeah. cancer conqueror, husband, and so much more. Thanks so much for your time, mate. I really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. I had a great time. What a nice guy, eh, on the Dom Harvey podcast. Thanks so much for listening all the way through. I I genuinely love it if you're listening to this message. It means you must have enjoyed the content enough to listen all the way through to the ending. Uh, love any feedback you have, good or bad. Um, the constructive stuff is particularly helpful as I navigate my way through this podcast journey along with you guys. Uh, message me anytime you want, domharveynz at gmail.com or on Instagram you'll find me, domharveynz. Just before I sign off, thanks again to my awesome sponsors who have made this episode possible. If you like the content, please consider supporting these brands, Generate and Radix. Generate is a KiwiSaver scheme. The Generate team do an incredible job. Actually, just recently they announced that their returns and advice have helped their members' savings reach over $5 billion. Billion. I switched over to Generate when they came on board as a podcast sponsor and I have not looked back. My only regret actually is not doing it sooner because my KiwiSaver savings would more than likely be worth more than what they are now. If you want to make sure you're making the most of your KiwiSaver account, chat to an advisor now. Head to generatewealth.co.nz. A copy of their product disclosure statement can be found there too. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Also, before we sign off, massive, massive thanks to my day one sponsor, Radix. 
Mike and his team are making absolute world-class products from their state-of-the-art factory in the Waikato and shipping them all over New Zealand and the world. Elite athletes have been benefiting from Radix products for years, but all of us can live healthier and better lives with a little bit of Radix. I start each day with a protein shake made with their powder, and their freeze-dried meals are nothing short of incredible. Don't take my word for it, though. Try them out for yourself, and I promise you will not be disappointed. Radixnutrition.co.nz Radix is spelled R-A-D-I-X. Okay, hey, thank you so much. Love you guys, and I do hope to see you next week on the Dom Harvey Podcast. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.